This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 13. We started looking at verses 1 through 19. And I don't know about you, but these are convicting verses to me. Um, These verses set a very high bar in multiple areas of the Christian walk. And we have applied it specifically to the area of Reformation. Let me begin reading in verse 1, reading down through verse 19 just to set the stage. And then this evening uh, we'll look at verses 7 through 19 together. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The key verses of our text this evening, as it was this morning, in Hebrews 13 is actually not found in Hebrews 13. But it's found in Hebrews 12, the last two verses, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As I mentioned this morning, the author of Hebrews is coming toward the end of his epistle, and he wants to land a very strong punch on the topic of God's unshakable kingdom. A kingdom, he says, that cannot be shaken. And then he says, we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There is to be a deep-seated desire to worship God. 
a deep-seated understanding of his character, that he is worthy of our worship, a deep-seated understanding that there is to be reverence with our worship, a recognition of the fact that Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. This is Christ's unshakable kingdom and the manifestation of that kingdom is with the church, that is, the people of God. The church is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a lot larger. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the cattle on a thousand and one hills. Everything in this universe belongs to King Jesus. He was crucified, he died, he resurrected, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and he is reigning. But it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the chosen people of God, redeemed through his blood, which are a testimony to the world and really are the only people on the planet that have a message worth giving to the world. And we spoke a little bit about that this morning, and we spoke about the fact as well from verses 1 through 6, that we aren't just to preach the gospel or tell the gospel, we aren't to just be cold toward other people, unbelievers, baby Christians perhaps, we are to let brotherly love continue, we are not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers, we're to remember those who are in prison, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, which begins with our first neighbor, which is our spouse. So the marriage bed is to be held in honor among all. It is to be undefiled because we know God judges the sexually immoral and adulterous. We spoke about the fact that we are to keep our life free from the love of money because a lust for money or a coveting for money can lead to all sorts of evil, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And furthermore, we should know that as the text says, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And as the people of God, we have seen him preserve us through history. We've seen him preserve us and sustain us in our own lives so that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, which is quoted here in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We spoke about reformation outside of the church. Our investment into society, which begins with loving one another. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're to let that brotherly love continue, but it is then to flow out towards strangers. Because, the author of Hebrews says, some have entertained angels unawares. And he's referring specifically there to Abraham in that incident in Genesis 18 and 19 when Abraham ran out of his tent, he bowed down, and he served two angels and the Lord himself. Completely unaware they were strangers, totally willing, totally volunteering his time and his servanthood for these strangers. And he did it with the Lord in his presence. So the idea behind Hebrews 13 is that the Lord is watching all things. We cannot expect to have a new reformation or a new revival apart from reforming things outside of the church, reforming our homes, reforming our marriages, reforming the way that we interact with unbelievers in the workplace, reforming the way in which we serve with our hands and our feet, and even the giving of our financial resources to those who need them, supporting the kingdom of God with our money for spiritual investment, raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because we understand one of the purposes of marriage is procreation, being faithful to our spouses because we understand one of the purposes of marriage is purity, being faithful in our marriages because we understand that God judges the sexually immoral. There is pain inflicted 
on all of those who violate God's definition of marriage, either by word or by action. And the implication of that is that there is pleasure, the companion of one's youth, the wife of one's youth. God created Eve to be Adam's companion. I mentioned that we oftentimes think about Reformation in big categories, but when you go back and you look at history, Christianity 101 has to do with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So Luther was making a monumental discovery in the sense that the Dark Ages had suppressed the truth and buried it. It was a novel idea that one could be justified by their faith alone, not including works, because the church was filled with perverted teachers and tradition. But Luther didn't really do anything um, ingenious. He simply recovered the truth of Scripture. And he recovered it not for the sake of the church, he recovered it for the sake of his own soul. He was converted to the gospel because he recovered the doctrine of justification by faith. And then the Reformation began to impact not only the salvation of souls, but the way they began to view marriage, the raising of children, the way that they went to work, the way that they viewed government. All of the bigger categories flowed out of the basic Christianity 101 categories of simply what Scripture teaches. And really, the author of Hebrews, this is a wonderful text because he's spoken about the unshakable kingdom of God at the end of chapter 12, and then he gives seemingly random commands, speaking about the fact that bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the holy place, that their bodies are burnt outside the gate. And then in another breath, Keep your life free from the love of money. And then in another breath, obey your leaders and submit to them. And in another, another breath, keep the marriage bed undefiled. And then in another breath, make sure that you're welcoming strangers into your home because you might be entertaining angels. I mean, these seem to be non-cohesive exhortations to Christians, but when you understand that all of it is being motivated by the author of Hebrews' desire for you to understand that you are part of Christ's unshakable kingdom and that there is not a maverick molecule that exists in this entire universe, we are to bring everything under submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and how we act and how we treat one another in our jobs, in our marriages, and all of those things. So it takes tremendous investment, societal investment, sexual investment or marital investment, spiritual investment with our money giving toward the kingdom of God and to the church. That is reformation outside the church. That is what you do with your life outside of the four walls of this church. And that is far more important than what goes on inside the walls of this church. Because if you can have a life where you walk on the straight and narrow, if you can have a life of character, if you can have a life of godliness, if you can have a life of integrity, then everything that is done inside the four walls of the church is seemingly easy. When we follow Scripture, our doctrine will be right. When we follow Scripture, we understand what church government looks like, how the elders of the church are to lead the church, and how members of the church are to obey and submit to them. When we come inside the church, we, we understand that we are to use our spiritual gifts, we are to serve one another, we are to share with one another. We have a city that we are seeking, one which is to come. We are to fill this building with prayer. We are to fill this building with sermons and admonitions and exhortations and application so that you are strengthened when you go outside of this church to truly have 
a reformation in your life, in your family, in our community, in our country. So we don't need to try to reinvent the wheel. That's sort of the point of this year's Reformation celebration. Get your life straight in terms of what you do outside of this church, and you will impact all kinds of people with the gospel. You will be a testimony to the unshakable kingdom of God just by going to work and doing your job and not complaining and going above and beyond, just by paying your bills and not being in debt, just by loving your spouse, by raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I know all of that stuff seems bland and it seems boring, and that is because we live in a social media culture where if you're not doing something big, you're a nobody. Well, guess what? God chose nobodies. He chose fishermen. He chose the despised. He chose the weak. He he chose the foolish things of this world. You are highly qualified to serve the interests of Christ's kingdom, and so am I. You don't need a platform. What you need to do is to be faithful, and this morning we looked at that. Now, tonight, I want to look at verses 7 through 19 because I want to hit on the topic of reformation within the church. So it matters how we live outside of the church. In some ways, as a pastor, that matters more to me than how you act inside the church because everyone's on good behavior when they come to church. (laughs) I'm interested on what your life is like outside of the church and what your testimony is like out there. But it is important that we have a reformation in the church because the church in many parts of the world, is not strong. In fact, it is very, very, very weak. So what are the four things that the author of Hebrews tells us we can do to have reformation in our church? That's what we want to look at tonight. The first one is this. The first thing you can do is be respectful to your leaders. Be respectful to your leaders. Respect for spiritual leadership, that is pastors, Pastor, teachers, and elders is a basic requirement for healthy churches. And notice the motivation he gives for this in verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He says, remember your leaders. Now, this is a call to action. This isn't just a sentiment. In fact, the same Greek verb in verse 7, remember, is used in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 when Paul exhorts, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. Because here's the reality, many of the leaders, apostles, preachers, church planners like Jesus had their lives taken from them because of their faithfulness to the gospel. So this is a call to remember the sacrifices made by previous leaders, even if martyrdom wasn't involved, there were still sacrifices involved. The apostle John wasn't martyred, but he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Christians are to remember that leaders in the church sacrifice for the people of God. Leaders in the church are officers of the kingdom of God, just like every other kingdom has its officials. And some churches elect them, some appoint them, but all are called by God so they should be remembered and respected. They are like Jesus, our forerunner. That's the label that the author gives to Jesus, who goes before the people, leading them both by example and exhortation. Notice, first of all, by their exhortation. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Those who spoke to you the word of God refers to those who exhort with the word by preaching and teaching. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 is clear that an elder or a pastor must be apt to preach or to teach. Now this could either be formally, like a minister of the gospel in preaching, or informally, like in a Sunday school class, but there ought to be some ability 
to give instruction and exhortation, even if it's not preaching, even if it's in an informal setting. Remember those who spoke to you the word of God. It's as if he's saying you can trust them and you should respect them insofar as they exhort or speak to you the word of God. So you test them by how faithful they are being to the word of God. They're not speaking their own opinions. They're not speaking their own agenda. They are faithful when they exhort from the word of God. That's their exhortation. But notice also what is important, and that is their example. He says at the end of verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I love this phrase, consider the outcome of their way of life. What is their way of life to look like? Go back and read 1 Timothy 3 and all of the qualifications for elders. It has to do with character. It has to do with integrity. It has to do with faithfulness and purity. And if their way of life, the outcome of their way of life is good, he says at the end of verse 7, imitate their faith. That is, imitate the way they live. In fact, that word consider there in verse 7 is a verb that means to look at again and again, not, not to unduly criticize, but to dutifully conform your walk of life or your way of life to theirs. You consider the outcome of their way of life, which should be superior, otherwise they wouldn't be leaders in the church. You consider how God has used them, you consider how God has preserved them, and you seek that for yourselves, you pray for it, you imitate their faith. Imitate me, Paul says, even as I imitate Christ. He's saying follow in their footsteps of faith because they have a way of living that is right and they have a faith worth emulating. Now one is motivated to respect church officers when they consider all they sacrifice, when they consider their integrity, when they consider that they've been called as officials of God's unshakable kingdom. They've lived according to the faith. They've walked by faith in God. And as a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11 gives to us the famous hall of faith. It's like a museum walking through Hebrews 11 and seeing the example after example after example of those who had faith, both men and women who were faithful to the Lord. But we aren't just to consider them for motivation, especially the ones of the past. We are to obey those over us in the present. So notice Not only the motivation, verse 7, but now look with me at the mandate. And we're going to skip down to verses 17 through 19 because the author believes this is such an important topic that he gives to us in verses 17 through 19 a command. So it's one thing to remember your leaders, to consider them, to recognize them, and to consider walking like them. It's quite another thing as we get into verses 17 through 19 because he talks about our obligation and our mandate of submission and supplication for them. How do we submit to them? Well, by listening to their voice, by understanding their role, by sacrificing your expertise. Notice, first of all, by listening to their voice. Beginning of verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. The word obey is pytho. It literally means to listen to or comply with. Now, this is not blind obedience, but this is a matter of headship since they are under shepherds of Christ. They've been commissioned to shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5.2, to serve the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5.4, which is Christ. So there is a sense in which you are under them and therefore you are to obey them, listen to them, comply with them, and he says, submit to them. Why? Because they are under Christ. And if you worry about any sort of hierarchy, then you don't understand Scripture. 
God built in marriage a hierarchy. The man is to be the head of the wife. And the church is meant to be symbolized by marriage. There is to be this element of submission. Now he says there, obey them, that's listen to them, and submit to them. The word submit translates hukete uh, is the Greek word. It means to resist no longer, to yield to authority. That's very strong language. And both obey and submit are used as synonyms to reinforce the importance of yielding to spiritual oversight so that a healthy believer will be yielded to elders in a local church. Listening to one's church leaders goes beyond listening to sermons. It includes heeding their counsel. That is to say, application is to follow exhortation or God's spoken word by appointed leaders falls on deaf ears. Consider what James says, but be doers of the word, he says, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, he listens to sermons, but he's not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. And so sometimes the listening involves a whole host of uncomfortable situations. In fact, Paul was clear about this. He wrote to young Titus, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's to Timothy in 2 Timothy. But he also spoke to Titus in Titus 2.15, and he said, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So there's the idea of exhort and rebuke in the same passage. With all authority, let no one disregard you. Now that could be a dangerous thing in the hands of a leader that's unqualified, but it's not a dangerous thing in one who is a faithful minister of the gospel or leader in the church. In fact, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You can think about it that way, that elders and pastor teachers are given to the church by God as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 sort of sums up what a listening congregant looks like. We ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. We ask that you respect those who labor over you and admonish you. So the author of Hebrews is saying you need to obey and submit to your leaders in order to respect them. And you do that by listening to their voice. But you also do that by understanding their role. You're willing to listen to their voice when you understand their role. What is their role? The middle of verse 17. For, he's going to explain it, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. These are men who will have to answer to God on the day of judgment. This is what one commentator says about leaders in the church. He says, speaking the word of God refers not only to the matter of the message, but also to the manner in which it is made known. It is not only declaring what is in agreement with God's own word, but clarity and confidence in the directness with which it's presented. 
So that's admonition, rebuking, whether orally or in written form. This letter, the letter of Hebrews, is a good example of this very thing and also for what is involved in watching over souls. What is that? Well, it is not a domineering intrusiveness into people's lives which denies Christian liberty and discourages Christian maturity, but a paternal care which gives people help when needed and running toward the goal so that they do not step off the track and drop out of the race. Such pastoral direction is to be responded to gladly and positively so as to make the work of leaders a joy and not a a burden and also a source of benefit. The church is not a democracy and there should be no authority crisis or power power struggles in it. That is, if you understand biblical church government. If you understand that an elder is more than a chaplain simply offering comforting words with no rebuking. On the other hand, he isn't to resemble a tyrant either. His job is to be a keeper and a guardian of souls, as the text says, because he'll have to give an account and answer to God someday. So let me just be very, very clear tonight. Elders are not to tell congregants where to live and where to work, how to educate their children, what purchases they should make or not make, what they can and cannot do on the Sabbath. That's intrusiveness. On the other hand, neither are they to allow selfishly motivated revolutions against the leadership of the church to occur. And so Paul was like a tender mother, a nursing mother. Have you ever seen a mother who truly loves her children never discipline them? Well, of course you haven't. And Paul also compared himself to a father that was basically going to come home to the Corinthians and set the record straight. There was a time to be very firm. All of, it, all of it, of course, was motivated by this desire to steward souls well. And if that is the heart of your leaders, then you're to obey and submit to them. Paul said, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish you, every one of you, with tears. That's not a tyrant. That's a pastor. Faithful shepherds lose sleep for the sake of not losing sheep. And that was the Apostle Paul. And we can just borrow some Old Testament language because you say, well, this is the New Testament. Yeah, but it wasn't that much different in the Old Testament. The prophets understood that they had pastoral oversight over the people of God. In fact, one of my favorite terms for the prophets is that the prophets are called in the Bible watchmen. In fact, that's exactly what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 3. Son of man, this is the word of the Lord coming to him. Son of man, God says to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. This is admonishment and rebuke and reproving. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning or speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So see, this isn't monkey business. Being a pastor is not a hobby. There is a heavy, heavy weight, heavy burden for a pastor, for other elders in the church, because they are watchmen. And the author of Hebrews says this is why you should respect them. And how do you respect them? You submit to them by listening to their voice, by understanding their role. They watch over your souls. And third, 
by sacrificing your expertise. Notice the end of verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, of course it wouldn't be. What advantage is there to be part of a church where every move and decision of the leadership is questioned or viewed with conspiratorial suspicion? There's no advantage Because that sort of atmosphere prevents soul care, it only inflames division, foments rebellion. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, just sacrifice your expertise. Let the leaders do their job. They've been ordained by God. And I should hasten to say, the greater the leader's burdens, the greater the honor and respect is due. This is an advantage because it means your soul is being watched after. Instead of the elders being distracted by unnecessary fires caused by church arsons. The parson who chases the arson will inevitably lose sight of the sermon. What were the apostles to do? Devote themselves to the word of God in prayer. That's why deacons were set apart. Specific roles for the pastor begins with preaching and teaching and exhorting and reproving and care for spiritual souls. A very, very moving statement by Paul is found to those troublemaking Corinthians. He says, um, here for the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. This is what I've given my life to, Paul says. I'm willing to spend and be spent, worn out like a wet washcloth, wringed out, But then he says this, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And the author of Hebrews is making that same point. Let the leaders lead with joy, not with groaning. This is no advantage to you. It's no advantage to them. One congregation in which Paul was very clear his joy was wrapped up in were the Philippians. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He called them in another place his joy and his crown. And that was probably the healthiest church he was ever part of, where he was able to say, this is, you're my joy, you're my crown. So the author of Hebrews has a way of saying that submission is beneficial because listening to their voice, understanding their role, where they're coming from, sacrificing your expertise and letting them do their job results in the leadership and the congregation having joy. You want to be part of a joy-filled church There's respect for leaders, and that involves submission, but it also involves supplication. Notice verses 18 and 19. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I like how he says us, because apparently the writer was himself a leader in the church, and you could almost sense there's a disagreement going on here. Because he says, I want you to pray for me, pray for us. And then he says, now we're sure we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. That means that there were things he was teaching that was hard to grasp. Maybe novel and far-fetched theology for these Jewish entrenched religious people. He has spoken throughout the book of Hebrews about the fact that Jesus is the final sacrifice. And you got all these Jews that want to continue sacrificing animals and that want to continue following a certain diet and then he talks about the new covenant and how different it is from the old covenant and he talks about the priesthood of the believer and these Jews are saying what and he's saying yeah you Jewish people who profess the name of Christ have got to let go 
of the old ways of doing things. So he says here, almost in self-defense, my conscience is cleared. I exhorted faithfully according to the prophetic word, regardless of traditions, regardless of what you thought, and pastorally, I've acted honorably in all things. What else can possibly be done? If you still disagree with the leadership of a church, well, you can always pray for them. You can pray that God would change their heart. If you really think they're wrong, pray that God will change their heart. But maybe you're wrong. So pray that God would change your heart. But he takes the humble path here. Pray for us. We know we have a clear conscience. We know that we have desired only to act honorably in all things. We're not perfect, but pray for us if you disagree with us. And then notice this, verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He was coming to see them and he desired unity when he got there to be of one mind. You know, sometimes church leaders are wrong and indeed they are always wrong when they teach or act contrary to the word of God. But as is often the case, as, and as was the case right here, these church leaders were right. They had a clear conscience. They had acted honorably. And when others in the congregation prayed for their leaders, maybe they would come around to see it from their perspective. Say all of that to say that reformation is not possible apart from leaders fulfilling their role. Congregations should give leaders benefit of the doubt, Leaders should be allowed to make decisions because, as one writer says, the church is not a democracy. Leaders will be held accountable to God, so pray for them as they make decisions. Before we go on to the second thing, and my first point is the longest, so don't get too worried, I would just hasten to say this. Every church does things differently. So you can't can't say that for every policy or every pattern of how things are done, that there's one way to do it. There's one way to do it in the sense that we're to follow the Word of God, right? We're to be doctrinally sound. We're to operate with integrity. There are all sorts of ways in which local congregations differ from one another, and it doesn't make one congregation better than another. But that's how Christians in our society function. They church shop and they church hop because they're looking for a perfect church. And Spurgeon said, Don't look for one, and if you do and you find it, don't join, you'll ruin it. He understood what it meant to have joy with the leaders and the congregation. But there's a second thing that needs to occur in the church for reformation. We'll move a little bit faster. First, you need to be respectful to your leaders, but secondly, you need to be resolved in your doctrine. Leaders are important to respect because the leader of all leaders is Christ. He was wrongfully treated. He is truth incarnate, and the truth never changes, and that's where the author of Hebrews goes next. If you skip back up to verse 8, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Jesus is his earthly name. That reminds us of his earthly work to save his people from from their sins. Christ is his title denoting the fact that he is the Messiah. But notice the time sequence of verse 8. It speaks about the the past, the present, and the future. The past, he is the same yesterday. This refers to Jesus' earthly work of mediation on the cross. He's the same yesterday, the past. He's the same today. This refers to the present, his intercessory work in heaven. Now on his people's behalf, representing them before God, interceding on their behalf. John 17, Romans chapter 8, or even Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, that he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it speaks about Jesus who is the same Yesterday, the past, Jesus who is the same today, that's the present. Jesus who is the same 
forever. That's the future. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, multiple times. He is a priest forever. The reason leaders are important is that Jesus is the leader of leaders. And not only that, he was the target of false accusations, was he not? And he never changed. He always did what was right. And leaders in the church are to preach doctrine that is Christ-centered, that doesn't change, that is according to Scripture. There is no way for a reformation apart from the raw truth of God's Word being declared. I don't know how else you do it. I, I could spend all week thinking about creative things for you in your life, or I could just tell you what the Word of God tells you to do. The Word of God doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change, verse 8, he's truth incarnate, and neither incarnate truth nor inspired truth ever changes. So when leaders are hamstrung from declaring the truth because they're involved in needless distractions, here's what happens. Verse 9 happens, notice your Bibles, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Verse 9 says that some are being led away by diverse and strange teachings. By the way, this happened in the Middle Ages with the Roman Catholic Church. The best way to obey the command of verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, is to be part of a church whose elders do not bend or break from the standard of Scriptures. They don't apologize for the standard of the Scriptures. And the preachers declare the truth boldly, clearly, simply, and accurately. Paul said if... I, or an angel, comes to you and teaches a different doctrine, let him be anathema. He says to the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deception. I already read what he told the Ephesian elders, that fierce wolves would rise from among the ranks of the church. And they're all over the place today. Speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So let me just say this, Bible exposition not philosophical homilies, is what will prevent you from being led away by diverse and strange teachings. Ephesians 4, pastor teachers equip the saints. They equip them for the work of service and they also help them be stable so they're not tossed about to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. And God's word reminds us of the grace of the gospel. It keeps our focus there on the gospel, which prevents spiritual pride because notice what he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And then he says, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. This is referring to dietary restrictions, legalism at best, and work salvation at worst. He's saying only the word of God's grace, Christ-centered preaching, prevents the spiritual destruction caused by legalism. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. The grace of what? The grace of the Word of God. That is what keeps your doctrine pure. That is why since the inception of this church, it has been the preaching of the Word of God that has been the primary emphasis. And it shocks me because people come and they know that, but they think maybe we really don't mean it. You mean you're just going to do the same thing every week? Well, yeah, because what else am I going to do? Romans 14, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I feel that every week of my life. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The simplicity of the preaching of the word of God. The simplicity of observing the sacraments. The simplicity of Lord's Day worship. To keep you from strange and diverse doctrines that will screw your life up. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil by others. And then he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's novel. You're telling me that a church isn't to be about all the things they make it about, all the superficial trinkets and attractions. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking because when your focus is on those superficial things, your focus is not on the word of God. And if God's word doesn't govern the church through heaven-sent teachers, then how do we stay on the straight and narrow? And by the way, apparently some of them had lost their focus on Jesus because he had to say in chapter 12 and verse 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Run the race. Lay aside every weight. Your eyes are off Christ. Your eyes are on all of these other peripheral issues that matter not. Just because some church planning guru or some mega church pastor said, hey, we have this over here. Why don't you do that? You could get more people. Well, that's true because people have itching ears. So they seek teachers to suit their own likings. You know, people refrain from joining Bible teaching doctrinally sound churches and they refrain from staying in them not because they don't believe in sound doctrine, they do. Not because they don't know sound doctrine, because they do. Not because they don't applaud exposition, because they do. But they want all the other things like warm social interaction, friendships, acceptance, a voice, a sense of community. Interestingly, these are all the things that attract people to cults. You don't need the truth to start a church. All you need to do is use all the things that other cults have done. Community, warmth, acceptance. Of course we want our church to be a warm and loving church, and I think that it is. But the point is, these readers were involved in a sort of legalism that was focused on dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. That is a peripheral issue, because the Old Covenant has passed away. Christ has come. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And listen to me, when the church moves away from focusing on Christ, no good thing can come. When you move away from Christ-centered teaching and preaching, that is exactly what ended up in the dark ages becoming the dark ages. It was the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of doctrine that shined light to break through that doctrine or darkness. So preaching doctrine is absolutely necessary for reformation to occur. But there's a third area of reformation inside the church, and we're just talking about the little things or the basic things. And that is, we need to be relentless in our convictions. Notice verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are familiar with all the sacrificial language. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. That was true. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate, that is the gate of Jerusalem, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So what he's saying here is that Jesus suffered outside of the gate. Now, those animals were burned outside of the gate, but they were sacrificed inside the gate. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus was sacrificed outside of the gate. Jesus was sacrificed outside of Jerusalem. 
Jesus was not sacrificed in the temple. He is the temple of God. And when he atoned for sins, the veil in the temple rent from top to bottom. What is he saying? He's saying that your sins were atoned for apart from Judaism. Jesus is the final sacrifice. You cannot wed Judaism and Christianity together. Let me be clear this evening. There are not two peoples of God. There's one people of God. It is his elect from every tribe, tongue, nation, and race of people throughout history. He began with ethnic Israel, and they were a rebellious people. And they're still a rebellious people today. What has changed? Nothing. They've rejected Christ. But what was happening was these people wanted to hold on to these Jewish traditions because when they converted to Christianity, their family members who did not convert were giving them a hard time. And they felt the pressure of that. So he says in verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Because a sign of a true Christian is one who runs to Christ, bears the reproach of Christ, no matter the cost. And there were many among these Christians he wrote to. In fact, Hebrews 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, speaking about the Old Testament saints. And honestly, in the first century church, it wasn't much different. People being arrested and beaten and killed. Listen, reformation does not occur apart from relentless conviction. You can't just be resolved in your doctrine because that's just head knowledge. Conviction is different than doctrine. Conviction is owning it. Conviction is living according to it and being willing to bear the reproach and the mocking. As he says in chapter 10, verse 33, sometimes there were those being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes you were partners with them. And he's saying you need to stay the course. Be resolved in your convictions. Christ suffered. Be willing to suffer with him. You cannot have a reformation when there's compromise with the world. What does it say about Moses, it says he had faith in Hebrews 11, and he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That is amazing. All that Moses had, he was a type of Christ. My goodness, growing up in the courts of Egypt as a Hebrew, and then leaving all of that to be with his people and deliver his people and to fight for his people. We must be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Jesus said, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is about being willing to bear the same reproach of Christ. You identify yourself with Christ in every area of your life. So these verses, verses 10 through 14, do not teach, listen to me, they do not teach separation from the world. Rather, they teach transformation of the world. Because as you go and identify with Christ and you bear His reproach, you are showing the world your convictions, you are holding forth your convictions, you are fighting for your convictions, and there would not have been a reformation if lives were not lost. There would have been no reformation if people weren't arrested. The reason they were 
is because they spoke forth their convictions and they were willing to suffer for it. And I don't know the percentage of Christians that are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. I'm really not sure on that. But I know this, if a reformation is going to occur, there's got to be a willingness to not only be resolved in doctrine, but to be relentless in our convictions, no matter the cost, whether it's a job, whether it's a reputation, whatever it is. Well, there's a final thing here that we need in our lives, not only respect to our leaders, not only should we be resolved in our doctrine, relentless in our convictions, but if we want reformation, we need to be reverent in our worship. Notice verses 15 and 16. Well, I skip verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That is in reference to the fact that if you're relentless in your convictions, then you understand the fact that we're seeking a city that is not here yet. It's being built. The kingdom is unshakable. But there is a city that is to come. That is the new heaven and the new earth. Here is not a lasting city. That'll make you resolved in your doctrine, relentless in your convictions. But now he speaks about reverence and worship. Verse 15, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is worshiping God with our lips. This is a quotation, by the way, of Hosea chapter 14 and verse 2. We are to confess his name. In chapter 10, verse 25, he told them to forsake not the assembling of themselves together as is the habit of some, right? He says, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in order for worship to be reverent, you've got to be present. But in order for worship to be reverent, it needs to be prayerful. And this essentially is what the author of Hebrews is getting to, the fruit of of lips that acknowledge his name, that is not being afraid to confess the name of Jesus, to pray in the name of Jesus, to worship in the name of Jesus. So reverent worship involves your lips. You got to be present, you got to be prayerful, and you got to be priestly. And this was the real stickler because these Jewish Christians recognized an established priesthood and they couldn't get around the fact that there was priests everywhere, anyone born again. That's what Peter says. He said, we, we are the priesthood of God, a royal priesthood. We are a priesthood when we come to worship each Lord's Day. We are all to open our lips. We're to be present. We're to be prayerful. We're to confess the name of Jesus. We're to pray in the name of Jesus. We are to exalt the name of Jesus. We are to be marked with the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name and continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. I can't emphasize this enough. A church that does not emphasize corporate worship is a church not worth going to. A church that doesn't have its worship reformed because it's reverent, it's in the presence of Jesus, it's praying to Jesus, it's praising Jesus through His Word, through song, A church that is unwilling to reform their worship to be reverent to Jesus is a church not worth worshiping in. And the author of Hebrews says, our reverence involves our lips, but notice it also involves our life. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I mean, it's like he's come full circle. He started in verses 1 through 6 about all this talk about remembering the prisoners and entertaining strangers because you might be entertaining angels unawares 
And now he's gone into all of this church stuff about respecting leaders and being resolved in doctrine and being relentless in your convictions and having pure, reverent worship. And then he comes full circle back to not neglecting to do good and sharing what you have, just as he began in verses 1 through 3 regarding brotherly love, regarding showing hospitality to strangers. Because Paul says... We are living sacrifices, Romans chapter 12. And the author of Hebrews says that such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So a biblical church, a healthy church, a church that can be marked by reformation, really has it all. They have qualified leaders. They have a congregation that respects and submits to those leaders. They are marked by purity of doctrine and Christ-centered preaching and teaching. They create a people by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God, people that are relentless in their conviction so that when they go out into the world, they actually have an impact. They wake people up because they're willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary for the cause of Christ. And then you start the next week and you reverently come and worship to offer a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips. You say, well, that sounds antiquated. It is. That's the point. You say, well, where's the coffee in small groups? You can have coffee any day of the week you want with any group you want to have it with. All we've said at the church is that we're not going to have region-wide established small groups with particular leaders that's endorsed by the elders because I don't want to have to police all of that. I mean, how in the world do I know what's going on in the West Bible study and the East Bible study? How do I know those in the South Bible study aren't involved in diverse and strange doctrine? But when you come together and you worship, we're a a transparent church. I think you all know that. I've had people say that. They've walked in. I've never been in a church that's so transparent. You just tell the truth and lay it out there. Yeah, what else would we do? As I said at the beginning, this isn't monkey business. This is not a hobby. We are dealing with the unshakable kingdom of God, right? And if I'm an official of the unshakable kingdom of God, I can't imagine fumbling because of negligence, fumbling the purpose of the church because I want to be trendy and just do what everyone else does because everyone else is doing it. And, well, pastor, we could have visitors that come in and then they walk out and they never come back again. Well, I guess this isn't a church for them. Because we're going to be centered on the Word of God. We are going to have qualified leaders. We are going to be centered on doctrinal Christ-centered teaching. We are going to see the Holy Spirit create those who have relentless convictions. We are going to see excellence in worship. And we're going to do that weekly. Then we're going to watch over your souls and we're going to pray for you as you go out into the world the other six days of the week and do all the things listed in verses 1 through 6. Which, by the way, will keep you very busy. This isn't a matter of playing games. That's the point. You think Luther and Calvin were about playing games? You think they were trying to do what was trendy just to get a like on Facebook? No, we are part of the unshakable kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king. We are not. We are to submit to him. He is the head. We are to follow the scriptures. And when we do the basic things, reformation can occur. But it amazes me. When I miss a Sunday here, I'll go and visit another church. I am shocked. I am shocked. And especially if it's a church that claims to be reformed, I'm double shocked. Because I could help them. Look, this is called the Bible. 
You open it up, you read it, it says what you're supposed to do, and you do it. Well, but, but no, it doesn't matter. Do you trust in the Lord, or are you afraid of man? Jesus said he would build a church. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the last high priest. He will never retire. He'll never be deposed. His power will not fade. His resources will not diminish. So what are we to do? Go back to the beginning of chapter 12 when we'll end. Verse 1. Therefore, based on everything I've said so far, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a marathon, not a sprint. What I want to see and what you want to see is faithfulness over the long haul, right? Have you ever known a precious saint, 90 years old, who was faithful to the Lord for 70 or 80 years? It's a sweet, sweet thing. It's real. And usually there's maybe 50 people at their funeral. But what kind of impact did they have on the kingdom of God? Massive. Because they ran the race with endurance. They laid aside every weight. The sin which clinged to them so closely. Verse 2, here it is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. It's keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. Not the world, not what the world is doing. We follow Scripture. And I understand that sometimes can sound like a Bible thumper. But I'm proud to wear that label. Because I I don't know what other kind of Christian there could be than someone who wants to be yielded to the authority of God's word more than anything. That's your heart desire, isn't it? That's why you're at this church, because you have the raw truth of God, as people say, just laid out there for you to grasp, for you to grow, and the glory and the treasure you have in Jesus Christ. So I like Hebrews 13. I don't think the author had any intention of talking about reformation as we're speaking about it in terms of application. He was just laying out the basics of the Christian life. What does a personal Christian life look like versus one through six outside of the church? What does a healthy church look like inside the four walls versus seven through 19? Basic, simple, clear, and pretty hard to argue with. If we want reformation, we must follow the word of God with Hebrews 13 as our guide. And may his grace be with us as we pray for that. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.